1 through 8. Did anybody laugh when Brit stood behind this little wooden pulpit? Goes up to his waist. You'd have laughed a lot louder if you saw me stand behind his. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let's read. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that to be the truth this morning. You have revealed it, not only in your word, but in our day-to-day lives. You have revealed that you are faithful, you are unchanging, you are constant, and you are the same. And we trust in you, Lord. We trust in you mostly in our heads. Or this morning, I just pray that you would transform us today that what is right now head knowledge would seep into the rest of our lives and our lifestyles would be marked by a sincere, rather a desperate trust in Jesus Christ. And um, this morning, Lord, I'm just thinking of people, as, as the psalmist said, believed in his words, sang his praise, and quickly forgot. There's some of us here that are having a hard time believing in your words, Lord. Just pray that you would have mercy on us today and that you would save us from that course of, of life where we believe in your words and we, we sing loud, but we quickly forget what you have taught us. Have mercy. Don't let us go in that direction, Lord. I'm, I'm praying for people in this room who are discouraged right now because of whatever it is that's happening in their life. And they're having a hard time sinking their teeth into the reality of your faithfulness pray, Lord, that you would make your name famous in this place and that you would destroy any opposition to that by showing yourself proved in their eyes. Lord, let the joy that, that, that uh, belongs to you strengthen your church this morning. We rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hebrews For the past 12 chapters as we've been going through it, it's taken almost 12 years for us to go through 12 chapters. And in those two years, we've heard nothing about anything other than Jesus Christ. Remember, the author of Hebrews is speaking to these Hebrew Christians that are struggling with walking by faith in what they know to be true about Jesus. They are struggling with their Christianity. Why? Because they're suffering Because things aren't adding up the way that they thought they would. Because they don't foresee what is in the future. They don't know what's going on. Things are crumbling around them. They are dying, being imprisoned, tortured for what they believe. And little by little, their hope in a soon coming king is dwindling. And so they need hope. And the author of Hebrews comes along and he writes the book of Hebrews. And from the very beginning... To the very end, it's their hope, Jesus Christ. Even in chapter 1, verse 1, he offers us the solution. It's simple. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has now revealed himself to us in his son. And for 12 chapters, it's all about his son. For 12 chapters, it's the doctrine, this weighty, thick, nasty doctrine about Jesus Christ. Even to the very last verse that we left off in, we see the the gravity of our hope. 
chapter 12, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. And so what we have now in chapter 13, so we're transisting from fire to function. As the Christian now begins to lay hold of these truths that have just been emanating from Scripture. What we believe is now put into practice, and I think it's swell that the author of Hebrews has just been talking about Jesus for 12 chapters, and in just six short verses, spews out the application. It's just that simple. The application is simple because if we really understand who Jesus Christ is, it will be natural for us. So his point this morning, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, his point is simply this. We are to apply all of this Christology. Everything that I've been teaching you, Hebrew Christians, for reality, everything that, that, that we have been studying in Scripture that it's taken us two years to get through, all about Jesus, all of this stuff, we are to now apply it in our day-to-day lives. We're to apply what we know about Jesus. If we truly understand the vertical relationship, right? If we truly understand our relationship with Jesus, that which is vertical, it will then be natural that our horizontal relationships will naturally fall into place as we see in Hebrews chapter 13, those first eight verses. And so the author of Hebrews is now going to list a few of those horizontal relationships, to show us what our lives should look like. Now, I want us to be keen to two points. One is he's obviously going to make a main point. He's just going to tell us what to do. It's going to be a command. We get it. He's going to make a main point. But in each of his main points will be a broader, big point that encapsulates that main point. What are you talking about, Chris? When you tell your child not to touch the stove... That's your main point. Do you have any other broader, more deepened understanding of that point? Or are you just shouting out arbitrary commands to your kid because you want to spoil his fun? (laughs) Any fathers in here with daughters? When the guy comes to your door and knocks on your door, you know, the guy... And you tell your daughter, I don't want you to date the guy. That's your main point. Don't date the guy. Is there a broad point? Or are you just shouting out arbitrary commands to your daughter because you want to spoil her teenage years? Or do you have a broad, more deepened understanding that encapsulates your command? Like, I love my daughter and I hate the guy. The author of Hebrews is going to do this right now in the next few verses. He's going to give us pretty basic, simplified commands. All of them have a broad point, connecting us again back to Jesus Christ. Because, again, listen, if we get Jesus, these things will happen. For example, the first one, let the love of the brethren continue. Verse 1, let the love of the brethren continue. What's the point? The main point is let the love of the brethren continue. Love each other. So loving Christians, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, we are to love each other. Basic. What's the broad command? What's the broad thought underlying that? Again, if we really know Jesus, if we really get it, these past two years, if that has really sunk into our thinking, We are then going to identify ourselves with Christ by loving people in the church. It was the Apostle John in chapter 13, 35 that said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how they will identify us as Christians if we love each other. That's going to be the standard by which the world views the church is if we're walking in love towards one another. We identify ourselves with Christ. So the simple command is we love each other. The broad reason is because it identifies, it pulls us back 
to this Jesus that we are so in love with and have studied so deeply. Now, I want us to define really quickly what love is. Lest some of us have this superficial Christianese term or explanation. You often hear husbands saying this about their wives. I love my wife. I would die for her. I would take a bullet for her. I would die for my friend. I would take a bullet for my friend. But would you take an insult? I know that you would take a bullet for your friend that you love, but would you take responsibility? I know that you would take a bullet from, from, for your wife, but would you take the trash out for your wife? The same John that commands us to love one another gives us a definition of that love in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, we know love by this way, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we're to lay down our lives for each other. That speaks simply of putting others before you. And now, with that definition in place of what love is, now all of a sudden it's become hard. Because now we're dealing with each other. And it's very easy to come into this two-hour block of our church life and raise our hands and worship Jesus and love each other and greet each other during the announcements. But when we go out there and we're in the parking lot and that dude with the reality sticker cuts us off or one of our friends is having a dispute with us or they wronged us or someone hurt my feelings. That's when this stuff falls into place because it's not always going to be easy, but we're commanded to do it. And it's bigger than just some arbitrary command. Just love each other, church. You love each other because you are identifying yourself as one of Christ's own. And it's hard, but we're to do it. And what I've found in my own life is the first place that I end up messing up in that area is with my lips. Through the hurtful things that I say to people around me, even in my ignorance, before it ever ends up at my lips, it's being concocted in my thought life. Psalmist said, set a guard, Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. James tells us that the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. We can tear each other apart. And I've seen it happen in my own body. And in this body today, there are disputes and bickering and the occasional grudge and bitterness. And we are commanded, not recommended, we are commanded by Scripture to do away with those things. But it wasn't my fault. It doesn't matter. It was your fault for sinning against Jesus Christ and he took the initiative and he went to you. And so we likewise are to adopt that attitude and reconcile friendships because by doing that, the world looks at us and says, that is Christ's. Or, that's Christ's? Author moves then from the church to the world outside of the church. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So in other words, don't stay in your Christian bubble. You know the Christian bubble. My little corner of the church with my little Bible and my Christian t-shirt and my what would Jesus do bracelet where I listen to Christian music 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I don't talk to anybody. Because they're evil. That is not the Christianity that we're prescribed by Scripture. We are to be lights in the world. That's the main point. What's the broad point? Well, if we're identifying ourselves as Christ, now we seek to make Christ known. By doing this, we make Jesus Christ famous. In other words, if we really understand Jesus, these past two years in Hebrews, if we really get it, we will go out there and we will make Jesus Christ famous by loving people that don't deserve it. And they're not going to love you back. 
We take the initiative and we love them, thereby making Christ known. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We're to let our light shine in our communities. We're to let our light shine in our jobs. We're to let our light shine in our schools and in our colleges. We're to let our light shine with our marriages and with our family, that the world who is watching us, by the way, would think well of God. Peter puts it this way. Keep your behavior subpar and mediocre so that the world will see that you're just like them. No, he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. We are to be more hospitable than the world around us. We are to show them up, so to speak, in hospitality. We are to be the best at it. Notice that there's nothing in Scripture that says that this is contingent on their love for you. Because I got a news break. They aren't going to love you all the time. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're promised that they will hate you. Nobody anywhere in all of this says anything about it being contingent upon their love for us. Rather, it's contingent upon Christ's love for us. And so based on that, we go out into the world and we love everybody with the love of Christ. We're lights in the world. And what that does is it makes Jesus famous. It always comes back to the Lord. We may be doing it, but it always comes back to Jesus as a testimony to his glory. Now, Contrast that with the world's philosophy. This is the world's philosophy. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. You love me, you marry me, and you keep loving me, and I'll keep being married to you. From the pit of hell. That selfish philosophy that the world has is from the pit of hell. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are a fragrance of Christ to God to people around us. We are to prove them wrong in their accusations, and we are to show them up in their hospitality. Notice that Paul says we are the fragrance of Christ to God in the world around us. Doubtless many Christians have a fragrance. It's not always a good one. It's not always one that reflects the beauty of the gospel. That's the one that we want. A man by the name of Eric Honecker was the leader of the German Democratic Republic. He was a communist leader in Germany. You might not be familiar with his name, but maybe you're familiar with the Berlin Wall, yes? Perhaps you're familiar with all of those who tried to escape communist Germany and were shot down as they were trying to cross the wall. You may not be familiar with Eric Honecker, but he is the man that was in charge of building the Berlin Wall. He was the man that was in charge of ordering the border guards to shoot those who were trying to cross East German border into West Germany and West Berlin. And what amounts to a heartbeat, he went from here down to here. He was indicted for his crimes, imprisoned, tried for high treasons. Instantly, from absolute power, he fell down to the lowest rung of his society. He was hated, despised by everybody in East Germany. He lost his job. He was stripped of his offices. He was kicked out of his own communist party. His own friends didn't want him. He was booted out of the villa that he lived in. Even his wife lost her home, and the government refused accommodation for him and his family. They were essentially homeless. From the upper rung of government, from the upper rung of command down to the lowest part of society, they were homeless, and it was Christians that stepped into their lives. A man by the name of Uwe Homer, a pastor, ran a Christian help center in the north of Berlin for uh, those that were starving and homeless and needy. And he did not want to give the former dictator a place in his center, 
because it would have been better suited to those that were actually needy and homeless. And so what he did you? He accepted the dictator and his wife into his own home with his wife. The former absolute ruler of the country was being sheltered by one of the Christians whom he and his wife despised and hated and persecuted. Now, is that ironic? Actually, no, it's not. That is basic Christianity. That is normal for you and I. That should be the norm in the church. And can you imagine if our attitudes were transformed to be the same of that pastor? Can you imagine what would happen in our community and on our coastline, in Carpinteria and Ventura and Santa Barbara and Ojai and abroad? If the church acted that way, if the 500, 600 of us carried the attitude of Christ Jesus into the community in which we lived, do you, ima- do you even know how that would change the world around us? Just our little community. It would transform culture and society. And that's what we're called to do. That's not exceptional. That is basic. Not only would this minister to the lost, but it would also minister to you and I. It would edify the church by binding us together in the reality that everything comes from Christ. A funny thing about grace. When we understand that we don't deserve a single thing and we understand that everything that we have comes from Christ anyway, kind of levels the playing field a little bit. We, start end, uh, we end up thinking a little bit less about ourselves and a little more about other people. We get a little less clingy with our own possessions and a little more generous by the love of Christ which indwells us. Author of Hebrews goes on and he says, for by doing this, showing hospitality to strangers, for by doing this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. That's awesome. When I was a kid and my mom first read me this verse, I was just flabbergasted. I was going crazy. The first thing I wanted to do was just Give all my change to the homeless. Mom, that's an angel right there. That's an angel. That's definitely an angel. He said, God bless you. That's for sure an angel. The author here isn't giving us incentive to give. Our incentive is Jesus Christ. Those are people that we're loving. We're not to love them in hopes that they'll sprout wings and have the glowy thing. We're to love them because Christ loves them. The reason that this passage is in here is to show us, just to emphasize how high hospitality is in the economy of God, that the angels of heaven themselves would observe our behavior in doing it. That's how important it is. And by doing so, we make Jesus Christ famous. Now, takes a little turn in verse 3. He says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the same body. Now, what's the point? Remember the prisoners. Remember those who are ill-treated, those who are persecuted for their faith. And feel for them. That's the main point. What's the broad point? They're in the body of Christ. And by us remembering them and praying for them, we unify ourselves with the greater body of Christ. Here in America, in the church, we have this very parochial, if you will, ethnocentric attitude about what the church is, meaning we're in a box. Christianity is American. Christianity is Californian. Christianity is reality. Reality is Christianity. It's what we do here. And it is a blessing that you and I get to sit in this building, air-conditioned with 500 other believers, free from any fear of being persecuted, two blocks from the beach. That's wonderful. We should not be ashamed of that. We should praise God for that. But we must understand, Christian, that we are rare. Christianity at large does not look like this. Christianity around the world speaks of persecution, speaks of imprisonment, speaks of torture, interrogation, 
Isolation, being stripped from families. When God says, when Jesus says in the New Testament, these are the things that await you, tribulation, persecution, people will hate you. They understand it more than we ever will. And that is the bulk of Christianity as expressed throughout the world. We just have a dose of God's grace in our lives. We've been given a lot, which means we owe a lot. And so we're commanded to remember those who are in prison for their faith. We're commanded to remember those who are ill-treated as if we were in the same body, because guess what? We are. Think about it. If we care for the down, and the, the down and out of the world, as was discussed in verse 2, how much more so should we care for the down and out who have chosen to be down and out for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And here in our little American bubble, it can be very hard, can be disconnecting, because we have no way of, of, of seeing that other aspect of the body of Christ let me make it really simple for you. Go out and buy a, bo- a, a book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and just begin to read. Jesus Freaks is another one. Voices of the Martyrs. Go on their website and begin to look at real faces. This is not an exhortation. This is not the, the, the author of Hebrews thinking, this is a cute thing that I could throw into you know, such and such. We're commanded to do this. And it's not arbitrary. It unifies the body of Christ. And when you read these things, and I charge you to read accounts of martyrs and those who have suffered and are suffering now, when you read those things, this is not trivia. Those are not simply statistics. Those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Had they been in this church, would be in these seats in the front row now, worshiping their hearts out. They're not For whatever reason, they are in China. They are in Saudi Arabia. They are in Iran. They're in India. They're in these places getting worked for the gospel of Christ. And we're to remember them in ways that will help us remember them. There's a website. Write this down. It's called prisoneralert.com. Put on by Voices of the Martyrs. Prisoneralert.com. You can go onto this website and see real faces of real Christians who right now at this moment are in prison for their faith. Changes your perspective a little bit. Super easy. In fact, not only can you see their faces and connect by the heart with them, but you can write a letter to them in prison. These are people that have been separated from their families. They have been separated from their church for the gospel. They're locked in a cell. They're beaten and tortured, and they're hanging on to their faith with dear life. And can you imagine what it would be like for that Christian to get a letter from some guy or some girl in California saying, I am suffering with you, brother. I am suffering with you, sister. Cling to your faith in Jesus Christ. There's a grip of us over here that are praying madly for you. It's easy. I did it last week found a Chinese man by the name of Gao Zizing. Gao is a Christian attorney in China that speaks out for the rights of persecuted Christians in China. Time and time and time again, he has been arrested and imprisoned, stripped from his family and his life. The most recent time that he was arrested, he was beaten to a pulp by guards, beaten to such an extent that he lay on the floor squirming and shaking uncontrollably. That's my brother in Jesus Christ. And in a matter of seconds, I was able to send him a letter translated into his own language because of the website saying, brother, thinking about you. We need to do stuff like this. It'll connect us to the greater, bigger part of the body of Christ. And it's so easy. You could do this after dinner with your kids. Set that vision with your kids. Now what this is going to do is it's going to allow us to minister, whether it's through prayer or just remembering or doing stuff about it. It's going to allow us to do that stuff in an awareness that we too could have been where they are. Quick reminder, FYI, that's grace again. Because we could have been where they are. 
God chose to put us here. What grace should do to the Christian is it should make us realize that we ain't nothing. God saved us just like he saved everybody else. So it makes us move. Paul in uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 3 in speaking to the church, the church who was struggling with trying to find their position in the church and their calling said this, hey, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly about himself than he ought to. Grace of God. What that's going to do is it's going to unify us all the more, and that is entirely Christian. If you get Jesus Christ, this is going to be the proper outflow. He moves on into verse 4. He says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now, what's the main point? (laughs) Honor marriage. Because God loves marriage. The Bible starts off with a marriage in the Garden of Eden. The Bible ends with a marriage. Marriage supper of the Lamb, the greatest reception in history. God loves marriage. But what's the broad point? The broad point is our horizontal Marriages point to a vertical marriage, which is that of Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom, and the church, which is his bride. Do you understand that marriages, as good as they are, were created by God for his glory? That the world, remember the world that is watching us, would see Christian marriages and say, man, that's how much Jesus loves the sinner? That's the whole purpose and design of the marriage. Culture should look at the Christian marriage and be stoked and taken aback at the beauty of Jesus Christ by what they see in our marriages. That's awesome. What's not awesome is this. If our culture has a distorted misconception of Jesus Christ, It's due to the marriages that represent him. If our culture has a bad misinterpretation of who Jesus is, it's because the Christians have not been cultivating that godly marriage. These aren't random commands. They all go back to Jesus Christ. Now he goes on. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Meaning... It's an institution designed by God. Marriage is an institution designed by God for a bigger purpose than just satisfying every sexual impulse that we have. What's that bigger purpose? Jesus Christ. It's an institution designed by God. Now that institution has been largely distorted by the culture in which we live. And by the lives in which are lived out in the world. And sadly by many Christians. This church will not do that. By the grace of God in our lives. This church will represent Jesus Christ in all of his glory. By godly relationships. We need the Lord for that. He goes on. He says for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. This is interesting. Because in honoring marriage, he distinguishes who he wants to honor marriage. In other words, it's not just married folk. It's all folk. It's the single people. It's the widows. And it's the married couples. Because what's an adulterer? Someone who's impure and married. What's a fornicator? Someone who's impure and single. When the author of Hebrews says, I want people to honor marriage, he says, I want every Christian to regard marriage as holy whether they are married or single. Indeed, that very act points to Jesus Christ. And church, you've been called to bear my name. I don't want you to defile it. I want you to honor it. You do that through these things. He moves on to verse five, and this is where the author of Hebrews just chucks an elbow. Maybe one that's a little close to our heart. Verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. 
Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. That's the main point, right? Don't love money. What's the broad point? What's the deeper reason for that? Because Christ wants you to stay loyal to him. Jesus wants you to stay loyal to your master. A dependence on money will always, always, always tear you away from your master. Don't take my word for it. Just take it from the text. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, this is the word of Jesus Christ, you cannot serve God and wealth. Now let's be careful. Because money itself is not bad, right? Money is not bad. Our dependence upon money is bad. Money is not evil. People are evil. And so there comes the command. Don't fall in love with your paycheck. Don't fall in love with your cash, but rather be content. Instead of that, be content with what you have. King Solomon Richest man in history since he lived. Sits down with his son and he gives him wisdom. And that wisdom turns out to be the book of Ecclesiastes and some of the Proverbs. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10, he says to his son, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Paul will reiterate the same thing to Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Timothy, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Better believe it. Timothy, the love of money, not money. Money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Now, I find that interesting Because the same Paul in the book of Romans seems to think that idolatry is the root of all sorts of evil. In chapter 1, verse 23, he says, they, and he reasons that humanity's downfall comes as a result of them exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. That's idolatry 101. Taking God off the pedestal of your heart and putting something else, it doesn't matter what it is. Exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Now this is sometimes where the church, at least in California, misses it. We need to do away with these old concepts of idolatry and idols. Namely, the, you know, the ones that we get out of Exodus. The golden calf. That was an idol to the Israelites. But what's an idol for us? Does anyone in here get down on their knees and worship golden calves? Hope not. (laughs) We need to define idols by what the scripture describes as an idol. Paul seems to think anything that you exchange for the glory of God, anything that takes the place of God in your life is an idol. Timothy Keller once said, an idol is anything so central to your life that you can't live without it. And so think about that. That doesn't even apply to to money. It could apply to anything. Your social status, your comfort in life, your big house, your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your kids, your money, the things that you do for fun and the things that you enjoy, approval from other people, your 401k, anything that if it were to be removed from your life and your life was just over as a result of that, that's an idol in your life because it's anything that that, that's that central to your life. And so when Paul says anything that takes the place of God is an idol, he's right. And when he says that the love of money is an idol, he's right because the love of money is idolatry. Idolatry strips the Christian away from God Now, again, I just want to preface, it's not wrong to have money. Money is not bad. It's 
it's not wrong to have money. It's not even wrong to have a lot of money. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to be filthy rich. But you must understand, according to the Proverbs, God was the one that gave you the ability to create wealth. And that is the grace of God in your life. And so what becomes wrong is when we take that wealth that we have accrued and we make it the God in our life by depending on it and putting our hope in it. If you have a lot of money, if you're rich, praise God. But if you're a Christian, use your money to show that God, not possessions, is your treasure. Use your money and your finances to the glory of God. If you're poor, Use the little money that you have to show that God, not the lack of your possessions, is your true treasure. In Deuteronomy uh, 31, Moses is about to croak. He's getting super old, and so he's just laying on his deathbed, and all the Israelites are surrounding Moses, just waiting for an inkling of wisdom to pour out of him. And he says, I'm getting old, like 120, guys. And the Lord won't let me go with you because I'm old. And imagine the turmoil that would have taken place in all of Israel. No! No! We need you, Moses. We depend on you. You are our only hope. We need you to do the, 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 the snake thing and the tricky thing and, and the, the, the Red Sea thing. We need that. We need that every day. We need manna falling from the ground. We need water coming out of the rock. What are we going to do? The giants in the land, we need you, Moses. We need you. And Moses, as if he already knew that that's what they were thinking in their minds, as if he already saw that coming, says, hey, don't trip out, people. I'm a man. Don't put your trust in me. God is the one that goes before you. God is the one that goes before you and he never changes. I, for one, change. In fact, I change so much that I'm about to die in five minutes. (laughs) Don't put your trust in me. So he takes off worship from himself and puts it onto God because Moses changes. As great as a man as he is, he fluctuates. Puts the attention back onto God and he says, be strong and courageous Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes before you. Then he says this, he will not fail you or forsake you. Don't put your trust in me, Israel. Don't trip out. God will never fail you or forsake you. And so the author of Hebrews now takes that phrase from Moses in that context, grabs it. Quotes it to the Hebrew Christians. He says, Christians, God will never desert you or forsake you. But that's not the main point. What's the main point? The main point is make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now when he says, I will never forsake you, I will never desert you, when he takes that phrase from Moses, the author of Hebrews does something with the grammar. He uses something called an emphatic negative. If you were to translate it exactly, it would be something to the effect of a double negative. That's literally what the author is writing. He's writing a double negative. It would sound like this. God will not, not forsake you. God will not, not desert you. Now what happens when we use double negatives? (laughs) I do not, not understand you. (laughs) You did not, not take English AP. When the author of Hebrews was using this, he was using a phrase that bare minimum was the strongest possible way to negate a possibility. In other words, he was reaching into his vocabulary. He was reaching into his grammar book, looking for the strongest possible way to say, this certain thing will never happen to you, Christian. He says, God will not, not, ever, never, never, ever desert you. 
God will not ever, 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 ever forsake you. Never, ever in your wildest dreams. It will not happen. It's not going to happen. Ever. Impossible. And yet that's not the point. That's not the main point. The main point is don't fall in love with money, Christian. Be content with what you have because God will never leave you. He almost seems to imply that money may leave you. And man, if the last year and a half hasn't accurately described that taking effect within our own body, I don't know what else does. Within this own body, money has left. Money has left your pockets. It's sprouted wings and it's taken off. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you don't know how to pay your next rent check. Some of you don't know how to pay your bills. Some of you don't know when your next paycheck's coming in. Some of you have lost your entire life savings, and there are some in this body who have lost their homes. Two days ago, the staple of our economy, of American culture, Chrysler, files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy three days ago. Money leaves. It doesn't stick around. It's fleeting. And in the face of that, the author of Hebrews says, hey, don't put your love and your hope and your dependence and your all into this money, which you will never be sure will always be there for you. Put it in Jesus Christ, who will not ever, 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 never leave you. Don't trust in your finances. Jesus is the only one worth your trust. So that we confidently say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Verse 7. Remember those who led you. Who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So the author would have had in mind maybe the apostles, the pastors, some of those who preached from the pulpit to the Christians. For us, it would be the same. It would be the pastoral staff that we submit under to who preach the word and it says submit to or remember those who led you and that's the main point but the broad point is and here at reality based on what we've read in scripture we believe that it's Jesus Christ who is the head pastor of the church who is the senior pastor of the church and all authority is given to him over the church we also believe by scripture that Jesus Christ, the head pastor, has instituted little, little pastors to govern the church and to teach the church and as scripture says, to have stewardship over the body of Christ and that's the big one right there. Stewardship over his body. It's his body. How does the pastoral staff have stewardship over the body of Christ? Well, Hebrews tells us they speak the word of God to you. That might be from the pulpit. That might be from a home group setting. Might be your home group leader. It might be uh, counseling. It might be a one-on-one. It might be in prayer. It might be your children getting ministered to at this moment. Whatever it is, these men, women have been given stewardship to do these things. And we're to consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. And so that's the second thing the second way that they've been given stewardship over the body. We should be able to look at the outcome of their life and mimic it, imitate them. Now, that doesn't mean that we put pastors or staff members or volunteers on a pedestal. Why wouldn't we do that? Because they're idiots. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's God's word, not my own, although I would agree with him. The pastors are foolish just like anybody else is foolish. Never put a foolish person on a pedestal. We're to imitate their faith and worship Jesus Christ. Now, because pastors sin just like everybody else, we're not to mimic their sins. We're to imitate their faith, the good that comes out of their life. What do, do, what do we do with their sins? We take note of them and we don't do them. When we are imitating their faith, we are taking the good, we are applying it to our lives, and we are leaving the bad, and we are learning from that. We are told in Scripture, 
to remember those who led you, spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, all of these points, all of these horizontal relationships that the author of Hebrews has been giving to the church flow from knowing the real Jesus Christ. Meaning, if you get it, if you understand who Jesus is, if you've gone through these two years and it's sinking in, if you understand who he is and it's real to you, this is going to be the natural outflow of your life. Now, the difficulty with most of these things you would find is that everyone that you're dealing with fluctuates. All of these points are fluctuating, meaning the commands that we have, love the brethren, love the church, love strangers, love the prisoners, love pastors, remember the pastors, honor marriage, so on and so forth. We're all dealing with these fluctuating, inconstant things that change, that are not reliable. And that is hard for us to do. That is hard for me to do. To try and exert anything from myself that is selfless towards something that is going to be selfish at times. Something that is changing. Something that varies. Because people are involved in all of those things. Christians sin. People out in the world sin. Persecuted Christians sin. Your spouse is going to sin. Your pastors are going to sin. Not only are people going to fail you and sin in the process of doing so, but money is going to leave you, the economy is going to crumble, and you may go broke, and you may lose everything you had. All these things that we're dealing with are fluctuating in their foundation. It's hard for us to do this. And if we adopt the world's philosophy, which says, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, we're going to utterly fail at all of these things. We're going to fail at Christianity. And the world bases their behavior on the consistency of that in which their hope lies. And they will run out of steam when that horizontal relationship fails them. But we are Christians. And our hope is in the consistency of Jesus Christ who is the changeless Christ and who is the eternal source of our Christian life. To do what? To love each other. Thereby identifying ourselves as Christ's. Knowing full well that we love and pour out our love on the brethren. And it's not contingent except only on the limitless account of Christ's love which is being poured out upon us. He's our eternalist source to do what? To love strangers and to love those out in the world and love those that are hurting, thereby making Christ famous and known and desired because we understand that we too were strangers. Nope, we were sinners, hostile to God, suspended over the gaping jaws of hell, stiff-arming the grace of God, and he came after us. We understand that now we can remember the prisoners and the ill-treated and those who are suffering for their faith, knowing that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and it makes no difference anyway because there are brothers and sisters in Christ and we unify the body of Christ. We're able to honor marriage knowing that Jesus Christ is our bridegroom and the dowry he gave to the Father was soaked in his own blood. We're able to reject idolatry and everything that comes along with it, thereby staying loyal to Jesus Christ, knowing full well that even though our earthly enjoyments leave us, Jesus Christ will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll never desert us. He'll never run out on us. He'll never be depleted. His grace doesn't run out. And when we submit to those in authority we understand that ultimately we are submitting to Jesus Christ who is the ultimate authority. We do these because we are finding our anchor in Jesus Christ. All of these commands are not arbitrary. They have their source and their foundation where they come from, from the person and the identity and the character of Jesus Christ who doesn't change. But scripture also reveals that we have an accuser. 
And his name is Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. And the accuser of the brethren, Scripture reveals that he comes and he stands in the throne room, the courtroom of heaven, before an almighty God, and he accuses you, Christian. What's he say? I imagine he says stuff like this. See that person you died for, God? Look at them. Look at how failing they are. Look at their their failures. You died for that? You poured out your blood for that? That's what you died for? That's what you spent your grace on? That's what you exerted your mercy towards? Look at how they're treating you. They go to church one day and they mess up the next. They don't do everything right. They're not perfectly righteous. They're failing in all of these regards. You died for that? We have an accuser. And some of us in listening to the accuser have fallen far away from the commands given to us in Hebrews chapter 13 because we have that weight of guilt and condemnation given to us by an accuser. People, we have a defender. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 through 3 says, write these things so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a defender with the Father. We have a defense attorney with the Father. We have an umpire with the Father. We have a go-between with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. What's Jesus Christ the righteous do for the Christian? He elbows Satan out of the way and he gets in the face of God and he says, look at these wounds. I'm interceding for my people. And it's true what Satan says. It's true that such and such did such and such thing. It's true that Chris Lazo is an idiot and he sins every day. But it's more profoundly true that my wounds speak louder than their sin. And I took the punishment of their sin on the cross when you, Father, poured your wrath upon me. That's what they deserved. I took it instead to Telestai, paid in full. And your heavenly Father takes a guy. Amen. What? Praise God. And the heavenly father takes his gavel and he clamps it down on his throne. And he says, Jesus, you're right. Satan, get behind me. Now, often what the accuser will do after that, keep in mind that accusations against Christians never hold up in the courtroom of heaven. Not because you're wonderful. Because Jesus is all sufficient. But the accuser will then go from the courtroom of heaven to the bedside of the Christian and I know he does this to you because he does it to me. You know what I'm talking about. He'll come to your bedside when you're falling asleep and he'll say the same things. You are a Christian? You love Jesus? How come you're at reality on Sunday but you're struggling with that? Jesus died on the cross for you? You're a failure. Look at your life. Look at your past. You're a nothing. God didn't die for you. Look at you. You should grovel. You fit in better with me than you do with God. Give it up. Christians, remember your defender. Because it's not just true that we have a defender. It's just as true as the author says, Our defender is the same yesterday and today and forever. And you shut Satan up by the word of the power of the cross. And you say your accusations do not stick. It's very important for us as Christians to remember who Jesus is. It's very important for us to get an idea and to constantly be reminding ourselves of his identity and character because everything that we have is contingent so very badly upon him. And he's the same. He never changes. It was said in chapter 1 verse 1 that God speaks to us through Jesus. He doesn't change. He's the same word that speaks. He's the same heir of all things. He's the same creator God, as chapter one told us. He's the same expression of the glory of God. He's the same representation of the nature of God. He still holds our paltry little world together by the powerful word. He's the same king. He's the same Lord. He's still better than the angels and his name is still more excellent than theirs. He's still on the throne and he ain't up for re-election. 
And his blood still purifies us as it did when it was warm and fresh from his wounds. And his stripes still heal us. And he's still sitting at the right hand of the Father because his work is still finished. Jesus Christ is the only thing constant, the only thing trustworthy, and the only thing reliable that the Christian has to cling to. And so we cling to him, knowing that he's the same. So we worship this morning. Pray that if there's any disconnect with the word of God in in these areas where you're like, that's not me. Please don't feel condemned about it, but rush to the throne. Rush to the altar and seek the Lord. If one of these things is not adding up, we as Christians are called to repent of those things that entangle us, press into the Lord. I pray that you would do that this morning. Let's grow in our obsession of the King. If we truly understand who Jesus is, this is going to be the natural outflow. Jonathan Edwards understood who Jesus was. He was obsessed. His obsession led to the great awakening in his own backyard. And of Christians, Jonathan Edwards said this, Christ is the end of their conversation." I agree. Let's pray.